A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored and dedicated in honor of Rabbi and Mrs. Druk from Detroit, Michigan, uh, Mrs. Druk is a direct descendant of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev and also in honor of Mrs. Druk's parents, Rabbi Meir and Sarah Junik, Aleim HaShalom, who both spent very difficult years with Mesiris Nefesh in the Soviet prisons under the communists. May they have continued nachas from their children and grandchildren. And it is the yard site of this direct descendant of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. So it's also Le'ili Nishmasa, Sarah Fruma, Basra of Shmuel. And this is um, an episode about, long overdue, I would say, about Rabbi Levi Yitzchak the Kedusha Slevi. So, very excited to do this episode. Before we get there, I want to get some feedback from the recent uh, episode on Navardic. Also, I, I just recently listened to um, on the fantastic podcast, The Svarim Chatters. There was a a really great interview with uh, Dr. Nomi Seidman about her book on Sarah Shanir. I really enjoyed it. Um, an f- amazing interviewer, the host of, of the Farm Chatter podcast, and it was very articulate and very well done. And, and just uh, we, I had a whole series on on um, girls' education, and um, and it's a great book, the Seidman's book about Beisiako. So you might want to listen and check out that podcast as well. Um, but going back to, um, I got sidetracked there. What was I saying? Yes, yeah, so the Navardic episode, I got some good feedback. Um, a lot of, lot of, a lot of, a lot of people liked it. Uh, I got some nice letter from a very knowledgeable and dedicated listener. Always shares and adds so much from his vast knowledge. Nachum Shemar Yahu Zions. So I just want to read part of the letter that he sent. Uh, see here that N- uh, Navardic had a branch open in Russia until 1925. I mentioned that, um, that Navardic ran, ran over the border in 1921, so apparently some branches stayed on longer. And then he continues, I want to point out a very interesting observation. You mentioned how no other network acted like Novartic in recruitment than in sending out Bachram to build new yeshivas. However, Chabad had already done this in Russia, and later on in Poland and the United States. 
There are many other similarities as well, including in the idea of building up self-esteem among the students. In addition, the comment you mentioned about the camps could be applied to Chabad in both the Holocaust and in Communist Russia and in the Far East during the war. It's very interesting that there's all these similarities between Novartic and Chabad. Uh, he also referred me to a Glenn Diner's article about the uh, yeshivas and the interwar. And Glenn Diner puts the number of Novartic branches at 70 and claims that they were self-funded and had a whopping 3,000 students. It's hard to believe uh, that the numbers were so high from what we know about the correspondence with the Vada Yeshivas and the joint, but you know, we'll let it go. So there's definitely a lot of Navardic branches out there and a lot of students. Uh, it seems that the whole Chaim Grada story struck a, cho- a co- struck a chord with the listeners as well. It seems that his story is pretty popular. I'm actually working on a paper about his writings in Navardic and I spoke to other people who are researching it also, and it seems like it's uh, popular today. Hopefully, we'll get back to him. Also, whenever I get back to the Chazanish, we'll probably speak about Chaim Grada as well. He studied with him, he was mentored by him, he lived by him, and then he made the Chazanish the main character in volume two of his book, uh, Tzemach Atlas, or the Yeshiva, or Melchemes HaYetzer, whichever translation you use to read that novel. But going back to what's more important, uh, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev, the Heilig Kedushas Levi, uh, the Barditchever, the Sanegoyeren Shal Yisrael, the great defender of the Jewish people. It's a special place with me to tell the story. I love speaking about him. We go often on trips to Barditchev, where he's buried, and I love guiding uh, Barditchev and his his grave site. And I was just uh, re- there re- uh, recently, and. It's been redone because they excavated the area and they actually found the original kever, the original matzeva, the original gravestone of him and his sons who are buried next to him. And it's kind of like a hole in the ground now. You like, you know, daven over this ledge and it's deep down. And it's apparently where it's several feet off of where we've been standing all the years. And now we have the right place. And um, in fact, in this recent trip that I did, um, one of the fellows on the trip guided us to the shul that the Bredichever davened in, which I hadn't even known existed, and I never had been there before, so that was exciting too. So Bredichever is always very nice, and then of course the group always sings the Bredichever Nigan, the one that, that the Kedusha Slevi composed, and it's doubtless one of the best Jewish melodies ever composed, the Bredichever Nigan. So it brings you to good places. So um, the... Um, the um, so it's 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 uh it's it's very exciting. Uh, so we even have miracles take place there. In fact, uh, on trips that I take, one time I brought a yeshiva there, and um, it was a yeshiva with a certain type of boys, and and I said a story with the Barditchever, and that he had this uh, excitement, this incredible excitement, this eslavos, this uh, ecstatic excitement that he would get, you know, all riled up for any time he had the opportunity to do a mitzvah. And there are many, many stories that illustrate that excitement that he had and exuded and expressed every time he was about to, to, to do a mitzvah. So I related one of those stories that, uh, that he had grown up as not, not as a chassid. He had only converted uh, somewhat later on after he had his marriage, which I'll get to hopefully when we talk about his life. And therefore, when he took upon himself the customs of the chassidim, 
So one of those customs were was to refrain from from putting on tefillin on cholamayt. It was based on kabbalistic considerations, and it was you know seemingly not in accordance with the halacha, which was was common in in Europe at the time. Everyone put on tefillin on cholamayt, so he stopped. So it always kind of, even though he knew he was doing it according to the custom of the kabbalistic custom and according to the custom of the Hasidim, but it bothered him. So on the Last night after Yantif on Pesach and on Sukkot, Maitzah Yantif, he would stay up the entire night and he would pace the room and he would wait until the moment that he could have put on tefillin again. And when it would come to that minute that he was able to, the earliest possible time to put on tefillin, he would be waiting there to put on the tefillin. And of course, I drew out the story for five minutes and I made it very dramatic. We're standing there at the kever and then the guitar guy comes in with the Berditch of Enigin and it gets very exciting. And we go on, and uh, and uh, come a couple hours later, we stop at a gas station. I'm not sure if it was for bathrooms or for to buy alcohol, or could be for both. And I'm approached by a boy in the group who comes over to me and says, "I want to tell you something." He says, "I have not put on tefillin in two years, but as a result of our visit and the story you told and the singing and everything." I got inspired, and I'm resolving to start doing so to put on tefillin again. And that was an amazing moment. And uh, you know, and several months later, I bumped into him, and it seems that he was still doing it. He still kept up to it. So it wasn't like just a one-time inspiration, one and done. It actually had momentum, and it kept on going. So you see that these uh, miracles really happen in Bardichev, and it's a special place. Um, so he's born in 1740. You know, the Baal Shem Tov is still alive. He never met him, but the Baal Shem Tov is still alive when he's born. He's born in the really early part of the Hasidic movement. He passes away in 1809. So already the when he by the time he goes, there's it's already has you know has developed into quite a, a movement. And there's so much legend, so many stories, so much folklore surrounding him. Even the Maskilic. And Hebrew writers of the early Hebrew literature used his persona in plays and dramas and short stories in the 19th and 20th centuries. So he was one of the most popular personalities and leaders in recent times. So it's important to separate fact from fiction when we discuss him as a historical figure. And more importantly, it's important to dispel some of the myths that have already been said about him by recognizing that he was a person, he was actually a human being, who had a life and a career, and he lived during specific years, and it can be easily traced, and he played a role in a real time and place. And what we want to do today is give that place and time some context and to what he actually did and, and accomplished throughout his life. So like I said, he was born into a non-Hasidic home in Galicia, in a very rabbinic family, prestigious family. His family name later on, uh, till today, it was Debermediker. De- De- uh, in Hebrew, his descendants go by the name Rachmani, which is what the name means originally in, in Yiddish or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, a Rachman, a someone who has compassion. Um, so his descendants till today have one of those two names. And he studies together with Rabbi Yosef Ta'omim, 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 the future Primagadim, who later on moves to Frankfurt to Oder, becomes the rabbi and author of the Primagadim. So, Sir Blavitsky is an accomplished Talmudic scholar and later a Paisic. Now, throughout his life, his entire life and career, he would be a rabbi. He would be the head of the rabbinical court. He would be the Av Bezdin. He was the Paisic. He was also later, at a later point in his life when he was in Bardichev, he, had a, he was a Rosh Yeshiva. He opened the Yeshiva and he delivered regular Shi'urim to the students in the Yeshiva. In other words, he was first and foremost a world-class Talmud Chacham 
And at the same time, he was one of the greatest and most legendary Hasidic tzaddikim. So in many ways, he was even the ultimate Hasidic tzaddik, or the paradigm of the Hasidic tzaddik. So apparently there's no contradiction between wearing those two hats and, and playing both those roles at the same time. He marries at a young age, as was custom at the time, into a wealthy family in Lubartov, or Bistral Peretz. And then he got attracted to the ways of the nascent Hasidic movement, which is not even really a, wasn't even really a movement yet. It was still in its developmental uh, stages. Uh, but the one who influenced him was Reb Shmuel Shmelke, later on of Nicholsburg. At that time, he was, he was the rabbi nearby in Richville, uh, Richville in, in, in Galicia. He's one of the senior and premier disciples of the Magid of Mizrich, and he brought him to the Magid. When he returns home to his father-in-law, who was not a Hasid, from the Magid. He disapproved of his going to the Magid and, 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 and being attracted to the Hasidim. So he was asked by his father-in-law, what did you see by the Magid? So he said, now I know there's a God in the world. So his father-in-law, who is a wealthy individual, calls in the living maid, and he says to her, do you believe in God? And she says, yes. So he turns to his son-in-law and says, you see, even a simple maid uh, knows there's a God in the world. So he says to his father-in-law, She believes it, but I know it. And the reason I know it is because I was by the Magadim is rich. So he enters the circle of the Magadim, becomes one of the most important members of the Helege Chavraya, the holy group that surrounded the Magad of his students. Later on, he'd be seen as one of the most senior and one of the only tzaddikim who was universally respected throughout the entire movement, which was a quite a rare accomplishment. He even tried brokering the peace accords between Reb Nachman of Breslev, who referred to him as the Pe'er Yisrael, the, 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 uh, the glory of, of, of the Jewish people, or whatever, however you would translate Pe'er, and his adversary, Reb Leib, the Shpeil Zeda, uh, was unsuccessful peace accords, but at least he made the attempt, and he was seen as someone who could broker that, uh, that peace treaty. Also, in another bitter dispute at the time between the Alta Rebbe, the, the Balatanya, and Reb Avram Kalisker, um, so that was another. In other words, they came to him. He was seen as the senior scholar, the one who that everyone agreed on, the one that was beloved by all, the one who was respected by all. Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, held him in especially high esteem. He he was the one who he sent the letter to upon his release from jail. Anyutes Kislev, the legendary. Uh, you know, the, today, till today is celebrated. So he writes there in that letter, he writes the letter to Rebbe Yitzchak of describing his experience of being freed, and he points out that he was freed on their their their, their joint teacher, the Magad of Mitzrich's yard site, who's at the Skislev, and he writes in there that famous letter that he was reciting to Hillim when they told him he was freed, and he was in the middle of Kapitel Nun Hey, the 55th chapter of Tehillim, where he was saying, Pada B'Sholem Nafshi, and he says he didn't even get to finish the Pasuk of Pad B'Sholem Nafshi when he got freed. So that the recipient of that letter was Rabbi Yitzchak Bradichever. The two were very close. So the Bradichever had a rabbinical career, um, like I mentioned. While he was in his low 20s, he seems that he replaced his Rebbe, Rabbi Shmuel Shmelke of Nicholsburg, um, in the rabbinical position in Richville for a short period of time. It's unclear how long that was. Uh, for you have to work out exactly because it, it, Rav Shmelka left to become a rabbi in, in another town and, and later on in, in Nicholsburg and moved to Germany, to Bavaria. And um, so, so you have to work out those years, but it seems like it was a short time, but he was already in, in his low 20s. He was, uh, the Bredichev was already a rabbi. 
In about 1765, he was appointed the rabbi of Zelachov, which is also in Galicia. Now we know today, based on letters and others, uh, other written sources, that he remained there for about a decade until about 1775, when he was appointed rabbi in Pinsk, which was a large and prestigious city. And, and uh, towards the end of 1775, he was appointed rabbi in Pinsk, and, it, and, and the city was also known for being a stronghold of the Misnagdic movement, which is something we'll get back to, the irony of that. And he remains there for also about a decade, until 1785. So again, this is important because I'm about to dispel a few myths here. So, he's, so from 1765 to 1775, he's the rabbi in Zelichov. And then from 1775 to 1785, he's the rabbi in Pinsk. And then, of course, in 1785, he's appointed as the rabbi in Berditchev, where he remains for the remainder of his life, till 1809, for close to a quarter of a century. So now we come to the um, annoying myth-buster. The story goes that his appointment to the Pinsk rabbinate was secured through the efforts of Rabbi Aaron Hagadol of Karlin, the great Karlina Rebbe, also a student of the Magad Mizrich. There's another story, even more exciting. The story also goes that during the time of the Cherem, the excommunications against the Hasidic movement, which primarily emanated from Vilna and the Vilna Gain, he had a series of run-ins, the the, 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 the in other words, the, the story goes that the Berdichever, as in his capacity as rabbi, he had a series of run-ins with the leaders of the Misnagdic Pins community, which ultimately led to his being fired from his position, and the folklore describes all sorts of violent confrontations and not such nice scenes which accompanied the uncer- unceremonious departure of, of him out of town, where they kicked him out of town, and uh, these are all great stories, and there's there's plenty more like this. Only one little problem is that these stories never happened. Why? Because we know that he was the rabbi in Zelichov until 1775, and he was appointed the rabbi in Pinsk in 1775 and remained there until 1785. Rabbi Aaron of Karlin passed away in 1772, three years earlier, before he even became the rabbi there. So, um, which was the same year as the Magad Mizrich. It was also the same year as the first Cherem in Vilna. So the first Cherem in Vilna is signed in 1772, three years before the Pins community hires the Bardichever to become their rabbi. So three years after this Cherem, he's hired as the rabbi of a large and prominent, supposedly very misnagdic town. Incredible. And he remains there for a decade. Why is it important that he remains there for a decade? Because the second Cherem in Vilna is signed in 1781, and he's still not fired from Pinsk. So not only was he hired three years after the first Cherem, but he wasn't fired after the second Cherem either. Four years later, in 1785, four years after the second Cherem that came from Vilna against the Hasidic movement, he's hired to become the rabbi in Bardichev, seemingly without any violent exit, and seemingly he was not fired from his former position in Minsk, and he'd remain in Bardichev for the remainder of his life. So the question we want to ask now is, how did this happen? Uh, So apparently we have to rethink a few things. Firstly, we have to understand why the Pinsk Jewish community, supposedly so opposed to the Hasidic movement, would go ahead and hire one of the most prominent and outspoken students of the Magadim is rich as their rabbi three years after the first Vilna Cherem is signed, and not fire him even after the second one is signed. That's the, that's the real problem here, right? So if nothing else, it attests to the stature of which Rablevi Yitzchak enjoyed as a Talmudic scholar in Paisik. He was so great and so prominent 
uh, and so renowned as a rabbi in Talmud Chacham that a large, prominent, misnagdic city had no qualms about hiring him as their rabbi. So that's, that's, that's point number one, which we have to point out. But the more important point is, this gives us the greater context of the time, is to dispel another myth. There's a widespread uh, assumption, which is a misconception, that in Eastern Europe at that time was divided into two warring factions. And everyone belonged to one of those factions, either Hasidim and Misnagdim. That was, that, was that was the two sides, and there was nothing else in between. Now, someone recently emailed me uh, the following line. Uh, in, in the context of something he was writing to me. Everything else in the email was fine. Was great. <laughs> then he writes to me, the word Litvak at that time was synonymous with the word Misnagdim, Misnagid. That's, 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 that's what he wrote to me. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. It seems from many sources that this was simply not the case. There was a minority of Hasidim, in the 19th century, they would grow to become a large minority, but we're here, we're still in the 18th century. There was an even smaller minority of active misnagdim, and I'm using the word active on purpose, active misnagdim. And the overwhelming majority of the Jewish population of Eastern Europe didn't care much either way. They weren't really involved. They were ambivalent. They were, they were not on either side. They were just, uh, you know, regular good old Jews, not involved in this new thing of Hasidim and Misnag. That was the overwhelming majority of the Jewish population of Eastern Europe during this time. So the Vilna Cherem, with all the noise that it made, it didn't exactly transform the landscape as far as the average community viewed the Hasidim, and definitely not the reaction they would have hoped for. Now, most, compu- most communities uh, simply ignored it. They didn't, they didn't really act on it. So, so the, therefore... A community like Pinsk, though they may have had misnagdim, but they were able to hire someone who was ostensibly in Cherem, according to Vilna. They hired him to be their rabbi. They didn't fire him even after a second Cherem came out, and he was their rabbi for 10 years. Um, of course, it also means that the whole story of Rabbi Yitzhak Berdichev at the Magid of Mizrich and him getting fired and everyone up, else standing up for him and all the other students of the Magid of Mizrich, uh, he said, how could the Pins community do that to him and, 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 and all that? That obviously didn't happen either because he was still in Zelichov when the Magid was alive and he was still in Zelichov when the first Cherem it happened, so he obviously wasn't fired from Pinsk before he even got hired there. So lots of things need to be rethought, both in the micro of the personal biography of Rebbe and the macro of how we view Eastern European Jewish life at this time in the context of the dispute between Misnagdim and Hasidim. So he becomes the rabbi in Bardichev, he opens the yeshiva, he delivered classes, he ran the Bezdin, he made takanas and rules in the town, he even campaigned against card playing in the town. Okay, talking about in a time where there's no haskala, there's no secularization, there's none of that. It's the late 1700s, but apparently card playing was a big issue and he went against it and he campaigned against Jews sitting around playing cards. Um, so he was a, he also played a major role in leadership of the Jewish people in general. He presided over meetings of leaders from all over the Ukraine and raised funds for different causes. It's unclear when he officially became a Hasidic tzaddik in addition to his regular rabbinic responsibilities, but he never founded a dynasty and he didn't have the institutionalized chatzar or Hasidic court that's associated with later Hasidism. The other hand, he produced many influential students. Um, his descendants were very influential as rabbis, as Hasidic tzaddikim uh, throughout the generations, and he was very influential 
influential in spreading the message of Hasidus and building and developing the movement, a, a crucial role, and he was at a crucial time. What he's most known for is the, as the great defender of Israel. His slogan was Mika Amcha Yisrael, for everything under the sun, who is like the Jewish people, and how great the Jewish people are. The Helig Arizhaner of Yisrael Friedman of Rizhen was even fond of saying that if you evoke the name Barditchev, because it is so much associated with the Barditchever and him defending the Jewish people at every means and always possible, so even evoking the name Barditchev has the power of raising the merit of the Jewish people in heaven. So when the Berdichever was asked why he bent over backwards to be the great defender, why? Why was he so out to look for the good of the Jewish people? And this is a question that's obviously asked in 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 Eastern Europe by you know by either a Galician or a Polish Jew. How could you be so positive all the time? Why are you looking at the good all the time? Why can't you be a little cynical or negative? That's basically what the question was. So the Berdichever answered that he, he cited a, a Gemara and Brachis in regards to the, uh, the the Gemara states over there that God wears tefillin. And in his tefillin it says, Mika Amcha Yisrael, who is like my children, the people of Israel. So so the Berdichev said, we have a halacha in Shulchan Aruch that one can't distract himself from the concentrating on the tefillin for even one moment. We must always have, never have hesech das, we always have to concentrate on the tefillin. So I'm simply assisting God with his mitzvah of tefillin, that he should always concentrate on how great the Jewish people are. And that's what became his, his, slogan, his slogan, his modus vivendi. Um, one time on Erev Pesach, he asked his, uh, his uh, attendant if he can go purchase for him some Turkish silk. And he said, we can't buy any Turkish silk because it's illegal to import uh, Turkish silk because the Tsarist uh, Russia, or still, I guess, it probably, st- uh, yeah, it was ready, it was ready after the uh, first and second partition, probably after the third partition too, when the story took place. So it was already in Tsarist Russia. It wasn't the kingdom of Poland anymore. So he said, Tsarist Russia is at war with the Ottoman Empire. And uh, therefore, therefore, you can't get Turkish silk anywhere. So he said, please, for, try to get it. So he comes back an hour later and he has a whole pile of Turkish silks. He said, how'd you get it? So he said, um, I was able to buy it. They're, you know, contraband. People are selling it under the counter. Uh, cash only, of course. So he said, what do you mean? But there's police in the streets. The Tsarist police are in the streets making sure you can't buy it. So it doesn't matter. It's still pretty easy to get it. He says, what do you mean? There are big fines and you can even sit time in prison if you buy Turkish silk. So he says, yeah, well, still I was able to get it. So he goes, now go out and buy chametz. It's Erev, Erev Pesach in the afternoon. Go buy chametz by one of the Jews of Bardichev. So he says, Rebbe, how can I purchase chametz? No Jews have chametz in their house. So he said, just go and try. He comes back three hours later. Not a crumb of chametz. He said, no one has anything. So he says, what do you mean? There's no cops in the street. There's no fines. Kares is a very abstract punishment, and it comes much later. There's no immediate uh, repercussions. How is it that every single Jew does not have a cr- crumb of chametz in the house? He says, look, I'm telling you, I tried and I couldn't find any chametz to purchase for the Rebbe. So he says, look, Mika Amcha Yisrael. Look how, we, look how we find the merit. Look how we look for the good and the positive and always are able, he's able to, to do these things to bring out the beauty of the Jewish people. He would, he would, uh, see, he would see the simple working man uh, fixing his wagon uh, and, and praying with his talus and tefillin in the morning in Bardichevs. He would say, oh look, even when he's fixing his wagon, he finds the time to pray to God. And he would walk through the streets of Bardichev with a bottle of vodka. And he would go to a non-Jewish drunk alcoholic and say, look, I have a bottle of vodka. And he would grab it from him and he would say, thank you, and and, and 
chug it down. And then he would go to a Jewish alcoholic, lying in the gutter. He wasn't the greatest Jew in Bardichev. And uh, and he would say, I have a bottle of vodka for you. And the Jew would ask for water to wash his hands and then take the bottle of vodka. So he would say, even the Jewish alcoholic and lying in the gutter in Bardichev, he still, he first washes his hands before he takes the vodka. And there's literally a thousand other stories in that vein. Some are true, some are legend, some could be true, some aren't, some will be, some whatever. But the idea is is that this became his theme, this became his whole uh, approach. And of course, his excitement for mitzvahs, which I already mentioned earlier, um, his 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 uh, one-time sukkah morning, his esrog was behind the glass uh, uh, break front or some sort of thing like that, and he was so excited to to uh, to to perform the mitzvah of esrog that he shoved his hand through the glass and bloody hand, and he grabbed the esrog, not even noticing that he had just cut his hand. That's uh, the extent of his excitement. Um, when he would daven, he would end up all over the shul, uh, like the Gemara describes with Rabbi Akiva. He would. His 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 eslavus, his excitement, his, his getting involved in his davening would bring him to. It would just be that he would end up in end up places that he didn't start. And when he would pray, he would actually address Hashem like in a conversation. He would like talk to him, like I'm, like we talk to our our colleagues. He would even demand things from God, and that's 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 the. That's what that's what that's what he is. He he wrote uh, songs and poetry and in Yiddish um, um, about lamer machen Let's make a trade. He's talking to God about making a trade between the sins of the Jewish people to receive forgiveness and blessing for the Jewish people. And there's we say Maitzi Shabbos. Many people say Gutfan of Rum. Not sure if he himself composed it or he popularized it. It may have been an earlier poetry, um, but a prayer for for the week. Um, there's the Oymani Choyma, which is a popular song sung by in many communities about him describing how despite all the hardships of the Jewish people throughout their exile, throughout their history, they've stayed close to God, they've still believed in him. And again, it follows the theme of his whole life about these songs of praise of the Jewish people and their relationship with uh, with Hashem. He, his Sefer, Kedusha Slevi, which was already written in his lifetime, but only published uh, for the most part later, some parts already published in his lifetime, is what became one of the cornerstone, one of the fundamental uh, books of Hasidic literature. And there's even a fascinating story, we'll end off with that, of um, one of the people who we could think of as the ultimate Litvak, uh, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, who was, you know, when he was 13 years old, he showed up at Volozhin Yeshiva, he grew up in the town of Mir, and he came at the age of 13 to Volozhin, he came a... A, a superstar in Volozhin, a student of the Nitziv, of Reb Chaim Brisker, a, a huge, tremendous Talmud Chacham, and later on was a Rashiva in Slabatka and in Slutsk, and, and then later retired to Israel where he was the Rashiva in Eitzchaim. You, you, pretty much you couldn't get anyone more Litvish than Rebis Zalman Meltzer. And in his later years, he resided in the Batei Rand neighborhood in Yerushalayim, and for the first time in his life, he is exposed to uh, Hasidim, who are his neighbors. And uh, so he, he all of a sudden was exposed to this other culture. One time he comes back home from Eitz Chaim and his wife is, uh, I guess, shopping in Machane Hudeshuk or something like that. She wasn't home and the door was locked. So he needed to, he knocked on a neighbor's door and asked if he could sit, he was already elderly man, if he could sit down and wait in the kitchen until his wife comes home. Sure, by all means. 
So he asked, once I'm waiting, can I have a safer? You know, it's not going to sit there, you know, uh, WhatsApping or, you know, uh, Twitter, tweeting. See, Rosh Hashanah is going to learn. So he, he, he took, asked for a safer. Now, in the poor homes of Yerushalayim in the 1930s, there were no Sfarim. People had, barely in the shuls, they had any Sfarim. So they, they had one safer in the house. It was a Hasidic home. They had a Kedusha Slevi. So they hand her Mrs. Zalman this Kedusha Slevi. I heard this story from uh, from uh, Reb Nata Freind, one of the closest students of Mrs. Zalman Meltzer, who heard it from him. So this is a really true sourced uh, story. It's actually happened. And so Mrs. Zalman is flipping through and he studies from the Kedusha Slevi for several minutes and then his wife comes home and he's able to return home. And he gave back the safer to the host and said thank you and he left. It happened to be it was around Hanukkah time when this story had taken place and a year later on Hanukkah this neighbor receives a knock on the door and it's Mrs. Zalman at the door. And he says, what can I do for the Rosh Hashiva? So Mrs. Zalman says, Gebmir Yena Sefer, or Kenechabn Yena Sefer. Can I have Yena Sefer, that book? Um, that book. Um, apparently, he had really enjoyed uh, what the Kedusha Slevi had to say about Hanukkah, and a year later on Hanukkah, he wanted to study it again. So the Kedusha Slevi has an influence way beyond uh, the, uh, you know, the Hasidic community itself. So this is a little bit about the Kedusha Slevi. This is Yehudi Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. You could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.